1: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking.
2: You know, Ebola is pretty much the definition of a really scary, deadly virus. But it seemed so deadly to scientists that they felt that it wouldn't have time to spread and become a full-blown epidemic. But they were wrong. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, I speak with Stefan Bullard, Associate Professor of Biology here at the University of Hartford, Steph is a colleague of mine. We actually co teach a course on living in extreme environments, and so I know how wide ranging his interests are. In addition to his work on the biology of marine invertebrates, sea squirts actually, he also does research on disasters, from shark attacks and bridge collapses to his latest book, A Day by Day Chronicle of the 2013 to 2016 Ebola Outbreak, an outbreak that infected almost 30,000 people and killed over 11,000 people mostly in West Africa. Steph Bullard, thank you for uh, talking with me today.
3: Thank you for inviting me.
2: So I wonder if you could take us back to 1976 and uh, and Yambuku, am I saying that correctly? Yambuku, I believe so, yes. Yambuku
3: Zaire, what,
2: what happened?
3: Yeah. So back in 76, um, roughly at the same time, there were two outbreaks of, at the moment, unknown diseases. Uh, they happen in Africa, in Zaire, another one in Sudan. Um, I believe the Sudanese one actually started a little bit before the, the Zairean one. Um, but reports came out that there was some kind of disease that was affecting people in the area, and it was obviously fatal. They weren't sure what it was. It appeared to be pretty contagious. Um, it appeared to have a very high fatality rate, uh, approaching 100% initially, and so, People went in, medical workers went to the area to try to figure out what was happening. They probably assumed initially that it was a known disease and just needed to be identified. Uh, But pretty rapidly, it became clear that it was something new, and they weren't quite sure what it was. It took a little while for them to get a a handle on it. Um, They did. The initial outbreaks died down pretty quickly. In fact, the um, one in Yambuku was kind of on its way out by the time the medical workers arrived. So they were able to contain it, obtain specimens, and analysis proved that it was a, a new virus. In fact, there were two separate new viruses uh, now known, the names changed for it kind of frequently, but known now as Ebola Zaire and Ebola Sudan. Mm-hmm. Um, very similar, previously unknown, related to the Marburg virus that had been known from before. Um, but yeah, they were able to contain it. They were hoping they wouldn't see it again, but yes, it would periodically reappear.
2: So you mentioned Marburg and some of these others.
3: What actually is the Ebola virus and how does it compare to other viruses? It's quite nasty. So the little group of viruses that are known as the, the uh, which the common name is thread virus, philo essentially is referring to hair. And so these were, there were a couple of them sort of vaguely known, um... But really, the the first one that people were aware of was one in Marburg and named after the the town where it occurred in. Uh, it broke out in 1967, working in an area where they were actually had some primates quarantined. Workers started to get sick. They started to die. They weren't quite sure what it was. Uh, Investigations shown there was a new virus, which they subsequently named Marburg. An uh, investigation, it, it wasn't really like anything they'd seen before. Um, but initially, they called it stretch rabies. Because it was highly fatal, very much like rabies. Rabies, for all intents and purposes, is incurable. Um, and rabies looks like this little tiny bullet-shaped particle. Mm-hmm. And so Marburg was more like a thread. But if you really looked at it, it kind of looked like a rabies virus had been pulled out. Mm-hmm. So they initially were referring it to stretch as stretch rabies, um, but quickly realized it was actually something different, and subsequently became Marburg.
2: So when I so I remember, uh, and you talk about this in your book that. Ebola was a virus like any other virus. Probably C D C was aware of it and World Health Organization was aware of it, but it really only kind of cracked the you know, the ceiling of, of popular culture in the in the nineteen nineties, right? With the publication of Hot Zones? Correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember reading that book and freaking out. Um, but I remember it as a hemorrhagic virus, like or a hemorrhagic fever, and people were talking about People bleeding from their, oh, eyes, their eyes, and please. you know, it's like a vampire movie. And in your book, I was really surprised to find it's no longer considered that.
3: Isn't that interesting? Yeah, because that, that's how I initially got interested in as, as well. I think most people in the Western world. So yeah, the um, medical community was aware of it after the, the 1976 outbreaks, and there were a few flare-ups since then. But really, aside from the medical community, no one was really aware of it. And then this book came out by by Richard Preston called The Hot Zone which was just incredibly well-written, incredibly compelling, documenting the initial outbreaks, um, where the virus might have initially come from, some earlier uh, occurrences of it, and then dealing with an outbreak of a, a related virus called Ebola restin, which actually happened in America in a primate quarantine facility. So it's an amazing book. And yeah, the, the initial chapter is incredible because it's talking about a guy he he gives the name Charles Monet to, it's a pseudonym, um, developing this virus in Africa and becoming sick. And it's incredible what's happening to him. They call it crashing and bleeding out. And they're referring to it a hemorrhagic virus. He's he's vomiting black fluids, which are undigested blood. It's it's a mess. So yeah, for the, a long while after that, people were referring to it as a hemorrhagic virus. And in some communities, they still do. People have backed away from that term though, because when you actually have Ebola, yeah, sometimes there are, are hemorrhagic symptoms, but sometimes there's not. In fact, often there's not. And so instead of continuing to call it a hemorrhagic fever, they just refer to it as now Ebola virus disease. Hmm. And the other
2: one of the other um, surprising things I found in your book was you were saying that because this this disease was so nasty and such a killer, I mean, 88%, 90% mortality rates, that paradoxically, that made the medical community a little bit kind of put them more at ease, at least around this idea of a pandemic, right? Can you explain why they
3: would be kind of relieved? (laughs) Yeah, it seems really kind of counterintuitive. But the catch is, if you want a disease or or if you're concerned a disease is going to start spreading and cause a a very large potentially pandemic outbreak, what you're looking for is you're looking for a candidate that in the worst case scenario would be highly fatal, uh, is highly contagious, but you'd also want something that had a relatively long incubation period. And preferably something that would have things that would be able, you'd have people who were infected but were asymptomatic and could then transmit it. So if you have all those conditions, you're in real trouble because uh, as we saw with the actual Ebola outbreak... (laughs) it's really difficult for the world community to control any active outbreak once it's begun on a large scale. And so if you have something that people can get sick, but they are known actually sort of symptoms for a week, two weeks, three weeks, uh, might take a little while for them to actually develop really wide-scale negative symptoms, then those things can slip through the cracks really easily, get out into new communities, and, and start epidemics in new locations. Ebola, although people were worried about it, it's so nasty. You get sick. You get sick reasonably quickly. They, they say the longest incubation period is around 21 days, but typically between about three and 10 days is when you start to develop symptoms. And the symptoms aren't subtle. You're really sick. You you're have massive diarrhea. You're vomiting. You, you can get these weird hemorrhagic symptoms. So really quickly, it's obvious something's wrong, and so people are contained, or at the very least, people avoid going near them. And so it's somewhat difficult to spread ebola as compared to say the flu
2: and so the medical community was feeling like okay this is a horrible disease but probably going to it's probably going to be um more locally contained than than a pandemic and yet 2014 disproves that so could you Take us into 2014 and and the and what happens and, and
3: how it progresses. Yeah, most certainly. So, yeah, people had seen this ever since it started in 76. They'd seen periodic outbreaks. Typically, they were confined to some kind of hospital setting. So someone would get sick, come to a hospital, infect the workers. The workers would get sick, often die. Sometimes they'd flee. Um, but relatively quickly, it would sort of die out. The people who were potentially able to be infected would be infected. Everyone else would be contained. And, and that would sort of end the outbreak. In the most recent one, however, th- that didn't happen. It started out that way. So it actually started in 2013. So the initial victim was a, a two-year-old boy. He was in Guinea. Uh, it was December 2nd, 2013 that he developed symptoms. So he had black stools. He, he had classic symptoms of a, a viral, um, Ebola virus disease. Did they, did they know it right away? No. So it took a while. This is the other problem with this. When you get to a place where you have Ebola, typically you're talking about Africa. There's a few in other locations too, but it's mostly Africa. There's so many endemic diseases in Africa. So many of them are so similar, especially in the early sort of course of of symptomology, that it's really hard to clinically identify Ebola. Even during an outbreak, you can have two people come to the same clinic. One might have malaria. The other one has Ebola. It's hard to screen them apart. It's very difficult, and so yeah, there's so many diseases circulating. the The young man became sick. They didn't know initially why he passed away, and that actually started the outbreak. Uh, what we believe happened, there was some really good epidemiology done to track back where the initial index case was, and I identified this 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 child. Um, so he was living outside this village called Gukakadu which is also the name of a uh, I get mixed up, prefecture in Guinea. Um, so you have the name of a town, the name of the pre- prefecture are the same thing. So he was living in this little village just outside Kukekadu. And apparently there is a, a hollow tree near his house. It housed a colony of free-tailed bats, which are insectivores. Bats have been associated with Ebola viruses for long periods of time and are definitely an, an active reservoir. They may not be the main reservoir of the virus, but they're definitely one. And, and so kids in this this community would go, they'd play with the bats, they'd run around the tree. And so they're pretty sure he was infected by either the droppings or some sort of infection from the bats and then was the the initial index case. From him, it started to spread. So his immediate family started to take care of him. They became sick. People nearby to come to visit would become sick um, and started to have a a chain throughout the community. Now, initially, it followed the same kind of pattern that we'd seen before, where it started to to expand. People began to get sick. Uh, Gukekadu, unfortunately, is right near the border of of both Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. So it's a sort of a nexus in, in that location. Um, And so what would happen is people in that area are highly mobile. They move around. So people would catch the disease, spread it from one place to another. And again, we're talking about international boundaries now. And and
2: they're not getting sick fast enough. That was the original theory, right? That people get really sick really fast. They stay put. It's going to die out. But you said people had time to move around.
3: They did. And and most of that, we think, is just based on the, the mobility of the people in this area. They travel a lot. And so people were getting sick reasonably quickly, but they're still traveling. And so it'd start to spread. But initially, it really didn't seem like, quote, that big a deal. So started in December, by about the middle of May, it really looked like it was over. Cases were winding down. Uh, they knew there were cases in Guinea. They knew there were cases in Liberia. They thought there were some in Sierra Leone, but they hadn't actually identified the virus. And then it kind of died down. And then suddenly, at the end of May, literally, you're reading the sort of reports, and it's like, okay, basically, it's, it's done. And then overnight, suddenly, there's this flare-up of cases in, in Guinea and uh, confirmed cases in Sierra Leone. All over the place, it starts to pop up again. And from there, it just went crazy. So
2: is, do you think that when I read that, I was surprised, too? Because like, I, I remember this was a huge story, or it became a huge story in 2014. And I don't remember the dying down part. Uh, and so do you think the dying down of this virus was just a kind of artifact of reporting? Or do you think it actually died down and something happened?
3: Ah, oh, that's a great question. I think what happened is no one knew about the initial outbreak. People are only aware of the secondary one. So there had been outbreaks of Ebola in the recent past, in the early 2000s, the 1990s, uh, one of which was big, but some were small. And they sort of became sort of commonplace. People got used to them. And so there were reports of the initial outbreak. I I, I saw them. I read about them. But there weren't really any red flags because it, again, feared to be following the standard sort of trajectory. And then in May, the end of May, as it starts to flare up again, that's when the world really got got their attention focused on it. And from there, there was no die down. It just really immediately ramped up. But a lot of people are less familiar with the initial, uh, the the start phase when it was actually kind of small.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: And so this um, this outbreak in 2014 really did kind of change people, it, within the medical community, changed what they thought Ebola could do. Yes. Um, so could you talk about that, like the response, and how it changed our thinking of of this disease?
3: Yeah, well, it changed in many ways. Uh, one of the things it did, which is a double edged sword, is it reminded us how dangerous epidemics are. Traditionally in the past, human population has been controlled by outbreaks of disease. You have situations where you look in Europe, you look in in Asia, and you start to have human populations increasing. Um, As soon as it gets to a certain level, it can't really be supported anymore. You get these disease outbreaks that crop them back. We've been away from that for at least 100 years, but probably more realistically a couple hundred, and we've sort of kind of forgotten about it. And so one of the things it did was remind us that disease outbreaks, A, happen quick, And B, are difficult to control, and I guess C, that not only are they they fast and difficult to control, but they can have a major impact on a huge portion of the world, if not the entire world.
2: Hmm. You know, the other thing that I was, when I was looking at the fatality rates of the first outbreaks, they were so high. And even in West Africa, they were very high. There were a few outbreaks in, or at least transmissions to people who then traveled to Europe and the United States. And the data from that, I know is that sample size is very small, but of course the fatality rate was much lower. And it raised in my mind this question of, so when you see something like that, virus is 90% fatal, how do people pull apart what, level, you know, I guess, what's the mixture of the virus itself versus the care that's received? Mm. Or even the climate, or the or the rituals, uh, the kind of cultural rituals of a particular place. So, could you could you talk about that kind of combination of things that goes into mortality?
3: Or, yeah, it's so complex, and in some ways, that's the most interesting and and sort of important part of this this study, which is exactly that. That okay, so you're asking a bunch of questions at once, but if you look at it, so you have any given disease, we talk about Ebola, and it's got a fatality rate. But the fatality rate varies depending on where you are. And so the question is, okay, well, why? If we assume that it's the same strain, so you get 10 people who are infected in Africa, 10 people infected in America, exactly the same strain, you would anticipate that if they got the same level of care, they'd have the same mortality rate. And that may or may not be true because you have genetics that play in and there there could be all sorts of subtle things that are going on. Um, So that is almost certainly the case. However, in general, the thing that was affecting fatality in the current outbreak was the level of care. Because if you look at it, I actually, in collecting my data, I put together slides of all the the photographs I could find. And it was really striking and and in many ways kind of sad, in my opinion, when you compare the level of care a a typical African would get in an African clinic and the level of care uh, a Westerner would get in a Western clinic. Um, If you looked at the Africans most typically, they'd bring people into an isolation area. Uh, They would be infected. They'd keep them separated from everyone else, and they'd try to do the best they could for them. But first off, they were incredibly understaffed, especially in the beginning, such that you might have a situation, there were some cases where they had wards where there were 60 patients, and at some points, only two medical workers for those 60. Each medical worker is in charge of a tremendous number of cases, all of whom require incredible amounts of care just for support. At the later stages of the disease, really, you become incapacitated. You cannot move. You're you're basically just writhing in agony. um, And people really need to take uh, 100% care of you to to keep getting you through that. In the African clinics, often what they were supplied with was some kind of mattress, a couple bottles of water, and a bucket. Mm -hmm. And that was their care. Now, on the one hand, that's better than a lot of people in the communities would get. But on the other hand, there wasn't really much there. Um, And again, that was especially in the beginning. Later on, it got a little bit better as more supplies came in. They got a little more resources. Um, But yeah, most of them were just left to try to hydrate themselves and, and keep themselves going on their own. In Western communities... It was completely different. I remember when some of the, the Westerners were released, they'd have these news conferences where they they bring out the the survivor, which was amazing. They survived. It was a terrible tragedy that they they suffered this. But then they'd show their care workers. And unlike the African clinic, where you're just on the floor with a bucket, they're surrounded by yeah. maybe 20 care workers who are helping just them. So it's a very different experience. And so that can definitely play into the mortality. However, even with that, there were some Westerners who did perish. So it's a very lethal disease. The more help you get, the better off you're probably going to be. But it's still very dangerous.
2: And now, well, let me actually ask this as a question. Um, now that we've been through this massive outbreak, and they've tried to create a vaccine, can you tell us about what we what we know, what we've learned from the outbreak, um, and what what's your thinking about? the
3: ebola going forward well the nice thing is my best guess is we will not have another ebola break like we we did in 2013 to 2016 uh we do now have a very effective vaccine there were a couple of vaccine candidates uh, even before the outbreak that were kind of in the works during the outbreak uh there was a lot of effort to try to get a, an effective vaccine and and there's now one that is some people claim it's 100 effective so it works quite well um I don't believe at the moment there's any plans to do mass vaccination, but if there is another outbreak, I'm sure there'll be a a plan to get in there and vaccinate. And
2: so what if the next outbreak is, you know, Ebola Sudan or Marburg would... Would that benefit do you think that the vaccines would benefit an outbreak
3: of that kind or that is a good question. That I actually don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they had some benefit, but my best guess is we need to tweak it and make it more specific for the the specific pathogen, but I, I don't know for sure. Mm. So uh I know you I know you quite
2: well since we're both here oh, yes, at the indeed. University of Harvard. And uh I know that although you call yourself a professor of biology, in fact, your your passion is really the kind of all of the, the, the stuff that revolves around uh, disasters and not just biological disasters like this. So you have, I think, more than anyone I know, the context for talking about different ways that people die. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps, yes, yes. <laughs> the, the different ways that, you know, people die in mass numbers. Uh, so... What, I don't know, can you just talk a little bit about how Ebola, when you look at this this book that you finished, how does it compare with some of the other disasters that you've looked at?
3: That's an interesting question. Um, Realistically, there is no comparison. So the the best comparisons where you have massive mortality, they're pinpoint disasters, things like the tsunamis. Um, The tsunamis are probably the most recent ones, um, 2004, 2011. They're probably the most extreme example we have of a major disaster that affects hundreds of thousand people, but affects them on the scale of minutes, hours, days. Outbreaks last much longer. The Ebola outbreak lasted, you know, a couple years, but that was quick in terms of an outbreak. And the scale is just unimaginable. So the Ebola outbreak, yeah, if you depending on how you look at the numbers, there were about roughly 30,000 people were infected overall, which is a lot. But in the scale of disease outbreaks, that's actually pretty small now with a 30,000 victim disease outbreak we saw how it literally affected the entire world and, and affected people who are very far removed we start putting in place legislation we start have people you know modifying the way they do normal behaviors based on what was a very important but realistically kind of a small disease outbreak if we suffered a very large disease outbreak which Some would argue we're actually very much overdue for. It'll be on a scale that's literally unimaginable. And we actually have one going on now. We just tend to not really think about it. And that's the AIDS outbreak. Mm -hmm. If you look at HIV and AIDS around the world, it is a massive pandemic that still affects millions and millions and millions of people. We can control it. And the actual incidents of it in terms of, of passing it are a little lower than they were in the past. But it's a massive pandemic. And we kind of forget about it. But if there was one that was kind of a a more direct, in-your-face, Ebola-like outbreak that happened on a pandemic scale, it it quite literally is unimaginable.
2: Um, One of the—it seems to me that the the thinking goes that if there is a kind of pandemic that has a very high mortality rate, it's going to be one of these— Influenza-type hybrids, right? Uh, I forget all of the H1N1 things, but one of these bird flus that emerge out of Asia. What's your thinking? Do you think that uh, do you think that's correct,
3: or do you think it might be something else? It, it could be a couple things. So if it's a native-born, like a natural illness that comes infects humans and becomes a problem, it would likely be an influenza-type thing. We have MERS-CoV going on right now in the Middle East, which is extraordinarily nasty. Um, What's the uh, what does it stand for? Middle East respiratory... I forget exactly what yeah. it is. Um, but it's really nasty. It's got a very high mortality rate. Um, at the moment, it doesn't transmit very easily human to human, but the concern is it will mutate. And, and that one's just kind of on the horizon. The influenza virus is always bad. And so the last really big one is 1918, but it periodically goes through cycles where it becomes really lethal. So those would both be very bad or things like that. We also live in a world though we have another option, and that is... an intentional introduction of a a nasty virus i was listening to npr just the other day and i was not aware of this Uh, apparently over the summer a laboratory group i believe in canada um, actually created a horsepox virus from scratch an extinct horsepox virus that was no longer circulating anywhere in the world there was only one specimen available for it they wanted to do some research on it they didn't think they could get the specimen so they just made it with off-the-shelf chemicals
1: Mm.
3: now that's a horsepox virus it's not really different from smallpox. So, you know, possibilities exist out there that haven't existed in the past. Oh, my God.
2: Uh, So did you get your flu shot this year? I I did not.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'm a bad person.
2: And uh, what do you think you're going to work on next? Do you have any... uh, Well, I know you've got a lot of projects, but what do you think the projects that that's going to rise to the top? That's a
3: good question. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. I've been working, we've talked before, I've been working on putting together databases on shark attacks. Um, I've been working on some snake bite data. So it's unclear exactly where my, my next little project will lie.
2: Well, Steph Bullard, thanks a lot for talking to me today.
3: No problem. Thank you for having me.
2: That's it for today. Next week, Kate Harris, author, pilot, cyclist, and astrobiologist, talks about her experiences cycling the length of the Silk Road the music for time to eat the dogs was composed by zabrat if you'd like to recommend a guest or offer an opinion please email me at time to eat the dogs that's one word lowercase at gmail.com and please rate the show and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts it's really one of the best ways of reaching new listeners who might be interested in the show see you next week